0: Greetings building science enthusiasts, your producer Miguel here. Hope you're all home, staying safe, staying well. Through the years, you've likely heard and not known you were hearing some of my musical compositions on this show, but given that quarantine has been a bit lonely and we could all use a little bit of calming music, here's a little tune I wrote last weekend when I got out all my acoustic instruments called Quarantine and Rain tried to capture the mood. Hope you enjoy. to this uh, Okay. Uh welcome yeah. to the Building Science to the Building Science podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design, brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello and welcome back everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science podcast. I'm Christoph Furwin. Here is as always with my friend and producer Miguel, but due to technical difficulties, no one can hear him. Uh, I'm also here with a, a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Allison Bales with Energy Vanguard. Say hello, Allison. Hello, Allison. Okay, I almost guessed <laughs> you were going to say that. So, Allison Bales is among many things, uh, building science consultant, educator, and the host do you call yourself the host of the energy vanguard blog Uh,
1: i call myself the author or the writer of the energy vanguard blog
0: the author of the blog the writer of the blog yeah so before we talk about the blog let's do a quick run through on uh how it is that you arrived at this momentous moment in your career where you got interviewed (laughs) kidding um but do tell us a little bit about uh, how did you end up starting Energy Vanguard and how did you end up starting Energy Vanguard
1: blog? Oh, gosh. How far back do we go? Let's say uh, all the way to fifth grade is where I would trace it to probably. Okay. <laughs> um, Fifth grade, 1971, Earth Day was a year old, and my one of my teachers, science teacher, I think, had us all do reports on some environmental topic, and I wrote this big thing about pollution and everything, and so ever since then, I was interested in environmental stuff, and and that... <laughs> Before too long, turned into energy efficiency because a couple of years after that was the first energy shock, the Arab oil embargo, and then right. the Iranian revolution. So energy became a big thing, energy efficiency, and went to college and grad school, got some degrees in physics. So I had all you know, that technical background with the physics and um, got a job teaching physics at the University of West Georgia. Hated my job. And my therapy was buying a piece of land and building a house. And that's Mm -hmm. what launched me into this new career in the world of building science. Are you living in that house? No, I lived in that house for three years and then I got divorced. (laughs) As far as you know, the house is still working well. As far as I know, but I haven't seen it, um, the house not only was a really energy-efficient house, very airtight, and it also had a gray water system and a composting toilet, and we put a radon vent in. I did all the stuff that I just read about and heard about from other people, but didn't have any real experience
0: with, and mostly worked out pretty well. Very cool. So how did you receive information back then? I mean, I'm sorry, you know what I mean, like where did you learn about... What to do on the house? Well, uh, lots of reading, of course.
1: And, uh, but before that, my thesis advisor in grad school, I don't know if I ever told you this, christoph <laughs> She was one, well, one of the only women in the physics department. Um, she had gone to Caltech, and she, um, she knew Richard Feynman there. She actually house sat oh, for wow. him sometimes. And she designed and built an off-the-grid solar house in Florida. And I got to see the, see that whole thing develop from her early days of designing it to building it and then living in it. And I actually went out and helped her some and uh, that was a really neat project. Yeah uh, so. Really? Yeah, and so that got me really interested in doing something. Well, I i had been interested in doing that you know, homesteading for a long time, Great. since the 80s at least. Yeah. And seeing her do that was really cool. And so a few years later, my now ex-wife and I bought some land, uh, 66 acres of land, and built a house on it. Um, well, we, um, not right away. We bought the land, and then we had to do a lot of learning about how we were going to live on it. And... and One of the ways that I made my decisions is I went to the South Face Energy Institute in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they, at the time, offered a three-day home building school course. So I get to learn from a bunch of different people there and learned about structural insulated panels and insulating concrete forms and the importance of air tightness and radon vents and all that kind of stuff, and... After looking into all the different kinds of ways of building the house, I decided to do structural insulated panels. And I also wanted to do insulated concrete forms for the basement, but I couldn't find a contractor who was comfortable doing that. And I, I did not want to take that on myself because the foundation, you, you definitely don't want to screw up. And I, we, were, we were in such a rush to get everything done. I felt like I didn't want to, didn't want to take that part on myself. So we did a regular poured concrete foundation and then put the structural insulated panels for all the, the above-grade walls and the, the roof above it.
0: Awesome. And so did you how long did you live in the house? How long?: Three
1: years? Um, well, so it took two years to build the house. <laughs> <laughs> and I like to say, uh, it, it was um, the power of self-delusion that got me through that, because for two years, I was always two months out. In two right. months, I'm going to be living in this house. In two months, I'm going to be living in this house. <laughs> and that lasted for two years. And finally, uh, in the summer of 2003, we moved into the house. Uh, started in, in September of 2001, uh, right around 9-11. I remember wow. we had a well drilled on 9-12 and uh, – i remember looking up in the sky and seeing no contrails from jets flying in the
0: sky and it was a quiet sky up there wow and here we are in the midst of the covid pandemic and it's quiet roads around here at least in austin quiet here too yes yeah well that's that is so awesome and energy bills were low comfort was good the energy bills were
1: really low uh, i don't remember what they were now but they were uh, they were very low uh, it was a counting the basement which was unfinished but inside the building enclosure we uh, had about 3000 square feet and our highest energy bill might have and it was all electric we did have a wood stove and while when well, we had a propane range um, which I would not do again but uh, mm-hmm. that's what we did at the time so but it seems like $70 was about our highest bill it's
0: not bad was that um, winter or summer?
1: yeah no we get about 3,000 heating degree days here so yeah. mm-hmm. and our design temperature is 23 Fahrenheit
0: that's pretty cold well for me I don't know who you're talking what to but laugh at 23 <laughs> yeah. Um Okay, well, good. So then that gets you into building science. Uh, Did you think of it as being called building science then?
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember, you know, around that time, I ran across an article by Joe Stiebrick, and I remember not having any clue how to pronounce his name. (laughs) (laughs) I I kept going over it in my mind, Els de Burek, Els, how do you say that? And uh, eventually I learned. (laughs) So, for, well, for, let me say, for, for those of you listening who may not know the name that I'm talking about, it's, it's spelled L-S-T-I-B-U-R-E-K, and it's pronounced Stebrick. That's how he pronounces it. Back in the old country, they would actually pronounce the L, but um, the, when they moved over here, they dropped the L sound, I guess.
0: Okay, so then you uh, started Energy Vanguard and wrote your blog. Simple as that.
1: Well, there was a few things in between. I started. <laughs> yeah. I started a company uh, called AB Three Energy, which was similar to Energy Vanguard, except I got into doing contracting with that. And then um, in two thousand five, my mom got diagnosed with lung cancer, and my personal life Mm kind of went uh, chaotic a little bit and I ended up getting a divorce and moving out of the house. And so that business fell apart. I moved into Atlanta, worked for another contractor there who was just, he was a remodeler, but he um, started a home performance division. And so I was one of two guys doing that. And then I went and I worked at South face for a while, 2007, 2008. Um, And then, 2008, I left South Face and started Energy Vanguard. So Energy Vanguard is uh, 12 years old now. What uh, a great
0: organization that South Face is. Yeah. Who was leading South Face? Oh, who was leading? Oh,
1: you... uh, who was leading? Uh, Dennis Creech was the executive director. He, um, he, and he was one of the founders. He, he led it the whole
0: time until about two, two or three years ago, I think. He finally retired. Yeah, I've seen him talk many times. Yep. Okay, so you started Energy Vanguard in 2008 – and what services was Energy Vanguard all about? Oh well, at first
1: I didn't know what direction we were going to go. I thought, um, you know, maybe contracting again. So I actually did a couple of uh, home performance jobs early on, back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Um, crawl space encapsulations, air sealing, duct sealing, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But then. Um, 2009 you know the the crash in 2008 hit and in yeah. 2009 the ARA the A-A-R-A-A-R-R-A the American mm-hmm. Recovery and Reinvestment Act the stimulus from the financial crash put a lot of money out there and uh, a lot of people were out of work so a lot of people went and did training and so I ended up doing a lot of HERS training with at South Face they Brought me back in as an independent contractor to do the HERS training at South Face with Mike Barsic, who was just an amazing trainer. Yeah. So I got to do a whole bunch of those in 2009. They had scheduled, I think, six HERS trainings that year, and they ended up doing 11. And I wow. taught ten, 10 of those with Mike. One of them I couldn't do because I had a prior commitment. But so we did a lot of training that year. And so that, put, um, the, uh, that ended my contracting uh, exploits. And I yeah. didn't really want to do contracting. And contracting let me inter-
0: is hard. <laughs> or let me, let me ask you a question to help help some listeners. So when you say hers training, you don't mean like his and hers. Uh, could you define hers?
1: Right. Um, I do not mean his and hers. I mean <laughs>
0: uh, home energy rating system. Was there a certain moment where you decided to start the blog or did it arise sort of naturally, organically over time? How, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, so – um, well, when I had my first business back in, um, 04, 05, 06, I wrote a column for the local newspaper in Carrollton, Georgia. And, mm-hmm. uh, that was, that was, I always liked writing and I had a lot to say about energy efficiency because a lot of people really just don't understand how buildings work at all, really, and energy efficiency. And so I, uh. Started writing again when I started Energy Vanguard and, and I started a blog in 2010. In fact, we mm-hmm. just passed the 10 year anniversary. I should have written a special article about it in the blog, but I, it, it was a Saturday and I missed it. So, hooray,
0: 10 years. <laughs> yeah,
1: March the 7th, 10 years for the Energy Vanguard blog. And in those 10 years, I have written well, I've published over 900 articles. Uh, the, let's see. What's the exact number? I could tell you. Uh, 902 at, as of the end of last year and two, four, six so far this year. So 908 articles in the Energy Vanguard blog. And most of those I wrote. There are a few written by others. We have uh, some others in there, but uh, probably 800 and...
0: 800 and some are all you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Okay, so just go ahead and read us all the names. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I've got the list here. How long you have? So 900 and some. Um, was there, so you wrote the article in the newspaper. What was your first, let's just start with the blog. What was your first topic? How did you start? My very what first time Oh, well, so
1: back in 2010, <laughs> well, so the, the first article was titled Peak Oil, Financial Chaos and Homes. This was 2010. So it was a couple of years after the financial crash mm-hmm. in, um, in 2008. And I was still thinking about peak oil at the time, although now it uh, um, seems like uh, at least some of that was wrong. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there is still th- some truth in there. Uh, so, yeah, the, the first article was about peak oil, financial chaos, and homes. And so it started simple. My, my third article was the one that really started the, you know where I got into building science stuff. And the, my third article was called Don't Insulate Your Attic. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people uh, with existing homes – Are trying to figure out how to make the house more efficient, and the first thing they think of, or sometimes are told by contractors, is you need more insulation in your attic. So my article was saying not to not put more insulation in your attic, but to do something else first, and that is air seal. Uh you got to make sure that – I mean, if if you're going to put more insulation in your attic, that's – if, if you do that without air sealing, you've missed a big opportunity because it's a lot harder to do that air sealing after you've got new insulation up there.
0: Right. And so. insulation without air sealing is not nearly as effective. Right. Right. Yeah. You're actually adding more air filtering media in your attic. Yep. Um, interesting. That's really cool. So the did that get you – I mean, I, I like the fact that it was a bit of a controversial title – uh, it probably caught a lot of people by surprise Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah I can remember around that same time we called it um, and I mean this with no disrespect but the idea of because uh, there's a lot of money from the R money going around and R funding and it, we called it here in Austin prairie dogging because the contractor would pop his head up in your attic like a prairie dog popping it <laughs> up, and then immediately come down and start writing you the invoice or the proposal like not checking for thermal bypasses, not checking for, you know, big air leaks, yep. um, things like that. Just prairie dog it and start start blowing it in. That sounds
1: like the, uh, the free energy audits that you get from the utility, too. I guess that would be prairie dogging because they usually don't go all the way into the attic either.
0: Those of you listening, I, I apologize here. Dr. Bales has a new book, and we're going to be talking about that on this episode. That's one of the reasons we're having this conversation. But so far, we're up to uh, him starting the Energy Vanguard blog, which has uh, captivated my attention for many years. It's a fantastic blog, Allison. Thank you. On behalf of our industry, our society, really, it's a big service. Thank you. So over the years, I mean, this is a little bit of a pop quiz, hotshot kind of moment, but... Are there any subjects, like looking back on the 10 years, um, you know, it could be specific or broad categories of subjects that you wrote about them, and it really got a lot of attention, got a lot of uh, interest, or maybe, I don't know, um, either engaged people or enraged people? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, no,
1: absolutely. Um, So one of the earliest ones I wrote that engaged and enraged (laughs) was about – uh, it was called Don't Let Your Attic Suck, and it's about powered attic ventilators. And I said, if you put a powered attic ventilator on the roof to um, exhaust air from your attic, uh, yes, it will keep your attic cooler. And if your house is air-conditioned, part of the cooling that you're getting in the attic is the conditioned air from the house so you're causing your air conditioner to work harder when you cool your attic and so you're not only using electricity to run the fan the powered attic ventilator but you're also using more electricity on your air conditioner so you're not saving energy there the uh, that one boy that um, I I I wrote that article that was probably in the in the first summer um, and it's. Uh, I don't remember how many comments it has. It's, it's well over 100 comments. And, and if, if I had comments on that article still open, I would still be getting comments. Because right. it's just, uh, the, there are a lot of people who don't want to believe it. Some of them because they sell power adding ventilators. Some of them because they just think I am uh, don't know what I'm talking about. But the, it also helps a lot of people. Not make the mistake of buying a powered attic ventilator. The, yeah. And the solution is, if you if you really want a cooler attic, the solution is to um, have good attic, attic ventilation, passive attic ventilation, the soffit vents and ridge vents, um, or gable vents or turtlebacks on the roof or something like that, and then do a really good job air sealing the ceiling. And then insulating it. If you, if you do a, a um, really good job with that, you don't have the, as much heat transfer from a hot attic into the house. And you don't need to worry as much about an attic being too hot.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So it's less about keeping the attic cool as opposed to keeping the attic heat from yeah. the conditioned space. Right. And there's other things in that probably like a relatively simple roof line. Um, if you could get some yep. favorable prevailing winds to help flush your attic heat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So passive ventilation
1: and uh, yeah, really good building enclosure at the, at the ceiling level, separating the condition from the unconditioned space. Now, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do get some people saying, well, I don't have air conditioning, and I found that the passive, the, the powered attic ventilator does a, a good job keeping that attic cooler, and it doesn't hurt anything. And I say, well, you know, okay, if you don't have air conditioning, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, still, you need to be careful. I mean, some other problems with that is you could backdraft a water heater. There, there are cases where powered attic ventilators backdraft water heaters. And if you've got a natural draft gas water heater, And it's connected with the attic, the the space that it's in. It's connected with the attic. It may even be in the basement. But if there's a chase that goes up to the attic, that powered attic ventilator can suck air from that chase connected to the room where the water heater is. And that air then gets made up by air coming down the flue. So the water heater backdrafts and you put carbon monoxide in the house. That that has definitely happened. Wow.
0: Which is a very bad thing, potentially. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, I'd like to hear some more, but I have a quick comment here. A question, actually. So you have been engaging with, um, I guess you could almost say a self-selecting group of people interested in home performance, people interested in building science. And you've been doing it for over 10 years now. Would you say that generally speaking, uh, that self- selecting group is getting more sophisticated in their understanding or is it staying the same like would the addict powered attic ventilator question receive so much uh would that be considered provocative at this point would people be like oh yeah of course that makes sense what do you think yes it is
1: considered provocative with some people because that's, that's not the answer they want um and, well, sales
0: interest
1: aside, I mean, that's yeah, a- No, but uh, um, let me go back to your thing about self-selecting, the self-selecting group the readers of the Energy Vanguard blog. So there are a, a group of people who um, are subscribers and uh, read it regularly and have been for many years, some of them all the way back to 2010. But a lot of our traffic also comes from Google. Google loves us, and, and we get a lot of just organic search traffic. So people have a question about power attic ventilators, so they go online. And because my article does so well, if you, if you search for power attic ventilators, um, you may see my article, and that brings you in. And so those people often are, are not the sophisticated readers who are the ones who subscribe and have been reading the blog for years. So they're just trying to find some information out. Like oh here's a, a more current topic the um, with COVID 19 now the coronavirus the the one of my articles has been getting a, a, a bunch of readers and comments uh, about filters because people are trying to make masks out of different kinds of stuff. And there, I've, I've written a bunch of articles about filters, and uh, there's one called The Unintended Consequences of High Merv Filters. And there's discussion in the comments now, you'll see, from people trying to figure out what materials to use
0: to make a mask that they can wear over their, their mouth and nose. So, uh, So the whole premise that it's a self-selecting group, Google has changed that. That takes Let's go back one level more recursively now. So your motivation in starting the blog, um, was it so that Google would love you? And I imagine that means you get some ad revenue? Or what motivated you to write the blog? Well, so, yes, in
1: 2010, when I started writing the blog, I, I also at the time signed up with HubSpot, which is a, a company that provides a platform to... Um, to host your blog and to, and they have lots of training materials about how to improve your SEO search engine optimization. So I, I studied that stuff. I watched their webinars and read their articles and learned about long tail keywords and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would put all that stuff in the file names for my photos and, and the uh, article titles and everywhere I could You'd put the the keywords in and, and Google, Google found us quickly. I, mean, really? I would post an article, and an hour later, I would see it uh, on the first page of Google. So,
0: wow! And so, are you? Can you put your um, pinky in the corner of your mouth and go muah, ha, 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 <laughs> Google is uh, showering you with ad revenue, or do you well, no, we no, we don't have Google ads
1: on our page. I, I experimented with that, but. I, I, I didn't have the time to figure out myself how to do it, and I don't have somebody to do that for me. So I abandoned the, the Google ads, and we, we do have some advertising, but we put that in ourselves, and that way we get to screen the kinds of uh, uh, companies right. that advertise with us.
0: Okay. Okay, good. So what about that? What, what, were, what were the motivations to, in starting the blog? It was to make your website well-known. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I well, I, I've been
1: a teacher for a long time. I taught high school physics or well, high school science uh, for three years before I went to graduate school. And then I taught at the college level for six years. And I've always enjoyed teaching. And that's what I wanted my career to be as teaching. And so it was a way for me to, to um, be a teacher and get the word out there about all this stuff that people should know so that was the main motivation I just wanted to to write and share this information
0: awesome altruism just because you know it's important important information yes. yeah I mean if you looked at the hours that I've put into the blog
1: uh, and the, the money that I've gotten from it uh, the hourly rate would be pretty bad I'm pretty sure <laughs>
0: I think I've known you since, I didn't realize, but I've known you since pretty early on in your career. We, we met through ResNet, through the yep. hospital, And you and I ended up speaking together. And I think we, we coined the term, or at least I hadn't heard it before, but Building Science Fight Club. And it was in reference to 62.2, uh, ASHRAE, L.A. <laughs> You ventilation that, standard, yeah. Ventilation standard. What, what year would that have been? Twenty thirteen.
1: Thirteen, yeah. Yes, and uh, speaking of Fight Club, um, in uh, let's see, it was twenty twelve, I think. Uh, let's see, Yeah, in February of twenty twelve. I wrote an article titled "You Do Not Talk About Building Science Fight Club." Yeah, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I've had people ask me, I mean, after that, people ask me, hey, can I use that f- for our group that we're starting up here? So, and
0: the people started some some uh, discussion groups with that name. Yeah, it's a great name. <laughs> You're very creative. Um, okay, so what was the gist? Do you remember? And I, I know I'm putting you on the spot here a little bit of the building science fight that was about the ventilation standard?
1: Yeah. So in 2013, Joe Stebrick was in a big fight with the ASHRAE 62-2 committee, the residential ventilation committee for ASHRAE. And ASHRAE, for those who don't know, is a, the uh, professional society for engineers and heating, refrigeration, air conditioning, and ventilation. So Joe had been on the committee for a long time and wasn't on the committee at the that time, though, and the ASHRAE 62 committee decided to remove a default infiltration credit, and so basically they bumped up the, the ventilation rates required for homes, and Joe did not like that, so he started his own ventilation standard. It That's wasn't true. a standard in the same way that ASHRAE 62-2 was. It's not a consensus standard and all that, but He he came out with that, and uh, I wrote some articles about that, and he went back and forth with the 6222 committee for a couple years, I guess, on that. One of the the Home Performance Conferences, uh, 2014, I think, they had a big panel discussion. In 2013, you and I at the ResNet conference did that session on ventilation and looking at Joe's Standard versus the 622 standard that was 2013
0: yeah and i can just remember you and i being astounded like why are all these people in here
1: (laughs) i know we had a packed room including (laughs) about five people i think from the 622 committee yeah a little terrifying some of them in the front row yeah yeah, and we had uh, an hour and a half, and uh, we went through all our slides in about 30 minutes. <laughs> and then we we had a really good hour-long discussion in the room. It was great. Yeah, it really it was. It was a really good discussion.
0: We talked about power attic ventilators and uh, ventilation standards. So those touch both on the big themes, right, energy efficiency and healthy homes,
1: yeah, and another another one that uh, I have written about periodically that that uh, sets some people off is ventless gas fireplaces, oh unvented God. gas fireplaces, because they're allowed in a lot of places in the United States, not in California, not in Canada, which also is not part of the United States. <laughs> but um, yeah, ventless gas fireplaces have, have problems. Uh, you should not be venting combustion products into the air of a home, uh, no matter how safe the industry will tell you they are. At a minimum, even if you have complete combustion all the time, you're getting a lot of water vapor put into the home. And in the wintertime, you put a lot of water vapor into the home. You can have some condensation problems. You can you can start getting mold growing on surfaces. And I, I've i walked up to a house that had unvented gas combustion going on. And the the main door was open. She had a glass storm door. And the water on the inside of that storm door, I was just dripping down the inside of the storm door from condensation. And yeah. she had mold growing in the closets and other places and It was all because of the unvented gas combustion in the house.
0: If complete combustion, right, what are the likelihood that we are achieving complete combustion? So the the gas, ventless gas
1: fireplaces supposedly have an oxygen sensor, which is looking at how complete it is. And the likelihood of getting complete combustion all the time, I think, is, is pretty low. But the amount of incomplete combustion is also pretty low. If if everything is firing properly, so you, you're not getting a whole lot of other stuff like carbon monoxide. What about
0: um, combustion gas particles that aren't burned or aren't fully burned? Yeah, I mean all that stuff gets
1: in the air. If if you so natural gas is methane, basically it's one carbon and four hydrogen, CH4, and when you combine that with oxygen, you in a complete combustion reaction you get carbon dioxide and water vapor coming off of that. If you don't have complete combustion, you get carbon dioxide and water vapor and carbon monoxide and carbon, which is soot, and you get some nitrogen combining with it as well. So you get some nitrous oxides, and and that can be bad. There's some studies showing that having the different nitrogen oxides in the air at certain concentrations is is bad for indoor air quality.
0: So it seems like a pretty easy one. You're saying it's another one of these that's um, somewhat controversial, though. Yeah, because uh, some people want their ventless gas fireplaces. There's a lot of builders still
1: putting them in. It doesn't take that much. It's not that expensive to put a flue on a, on a fireplace. And right. With direct vent, it can go through the sidewalk. It doesn't have to go up. So it's, it doesn't add that much cost. But they want their ventless.
0: Yeah. And so you and I, as friends, we've talked a lot about different dimensions of building science or building science decisions. And it's deeply psychological, basically. And it's this interesting thing where a lot of times those of us that in the, on the professional side, so like the building science consultants, architects, engineers, builders, we say things like, or I hear things like, oh, well, it's what the client wants. So we should give them that. Yeah. And yet it's like, well, that's fine. Like I like French fries a lot, but I don't delude myself that like, there's no problem eating a French fries. And I don't ask some professional organization to also help me with that you know, misconception. So it's kind of like, like we're not saying you shouldn't install, you're not saying you shouldn't install a ventless gas fireplace or a powered attic ventilator. You're just saying, here's the facts about what happens or potentially will happen. If you do on the ventless gas fireplace, is it builders mainly that are promoting them, saying they're they're fine, or is it mainly the manufacturers? Well,
1: uh, manufacturers, builders, uh, the companies that sell them, the, the you know the hearth companies, and, and and there's people who want them because they think they're simpler and they're fine, and they think that they're getting more heat. If they, uh, if they burn gas in a ventless gas fireplace because everything stays inside, they think they're getting more heat because, you know, 100% of that heat stays inside, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's none going up the flue, but um, it's like thermal comfort versus health, right? And so health trumps comfort. Yeah.
1: Well, but, but there's another aspect to that, too. And when they say that it's more efficient to uh, burn gas and, and get all the heat with a ventless gas appliance, it's – you actually don't get as much heat in the house with a ventless gas fireplace as you do with a condensing furnace, because when you do a condense uh, a ventless gas fireplace, you're putting all that water vapor in the house, mm-hmm. and you will you will get that sensible heat out of it if you condense that water vapor, which you don't really want to do uh, on surfaces it's- where you can grow mold anyway. So if, if you take that same gas and burn it in a condensing fireplace, I mean a, condes- <laughs> a condensing furnace, you, <laughs>
0: you, you get more of the heat out of that gas. Right. Yeah, you get all that um, energy that's stored yep. in the water molecule. The latent yeah. heat of the water vapor. Okay, so we've touched now on... Um, I guess that one bridges both energy efficiency and healthy homes. Yep. Could, do you remember, like, was there a time, I guess I'm kind of thinking about our own, my career paralleled yours in ter- terms of this time frame too, and many of the themes. Um, so this question is, do you remember when there was a transition from energy efficiency and healthy homes started to become a, a an important theme that was tied to energy efficiency? Or was it always there for you? Uh, That's a good question. Um, You know,
1: people have have thought about indoor air quality for a long time, but I, I think it hasn't been presented in an integrated way where, you know, the energy efficiency and and thermal comfort and indoor air quality and all that stuff is is tied together. And now more people are seeing that. And, you know, with podcasts like yours and blogs like mine, people are putting that out there. So it's, it's more common for people to know about that. Yeah. I, I don't know exactly when that started, uh, but I know in the
0: last decade, it certainly has ramped up. There was a lot of CAS testing associated, or combustion appliance zone testing associated with the uh, RF funding, and and for me, that was the, the tip up, tipping point, like, oh yeah, what else is in our air? Okay, so that might be a good segue into talking about your book now. Um, sure. Do you have enough clarity on the, the subject matter of your book to say, is it about energy efficiency and healthy homes? Is it one more so than the other? Well, yeah, I have enough clarity. So so first of
1: all, um, you you said at the beginning that I have a book uh, out, but it, it's, it's oh. a book in progress, and mm-hmm. the I, I've got a campaign out right now to get pre-orders for the book to help me get a really good publisher and also to help support the time that I'm going to need to finish writing the book. I'm I've, I've taking some of the material that I've got in the blog, but at this the, the book is going to be a cohesive whole. It's not just going to be a collection of, of blog articles. And what I, I see is different about this book from a lot of energy efficiency books is that I'm approaching this from the perspective of the homeowner. You know, what what is it that homeowners or occupants want out of a home? You know, they, they want to be comfortable. They want to be healthy. They want not to have to turn the the television up whenever the air conditioner comes on because it's so loud (laughs) and you know there's there's certain experiences they want out of the house and so that's that's where that's my starting point in the book is you know what do we need to have a high performance home and so starting with the topic of indoor environmental quality and, and the list of all those things you know sound control and and Thermal comfort and indoor air quality. Energy efficiency is important, but that should not be our first focus. And So if you do all the other stuff right, you generally end up with really good energy efficiency. But you can't focus just on the energy efficiency. Well said.
0: So what have you titled your book?
1: Yes, the book is called, it's called A House Needs to Breathe, dot, dot, dot. Or does it?
0: Okay, let's go there before we go farther. Does Should it have it? to breathe?
1: A house needs to breathe. So, this is something that I've heard um, mostly from builders yeah. uh, who who think that airtightness is is BS and not of the building science type. <laughs> it is BS, but it's building science. It's based in building science and. When somebody says a house needs to breathe, usually they mean that you shouldn't make it too airtight because their thinking is that then if you make the house too tight, this is going to have indoor air quality problems and people are going to get sick and, and that's not good. So we need to we need to leave some some holes in the building enclosure so that the house can breathe, so that air can exchange between indoors and outdoors. Which is a terrible idea because if you leave random leaks in the building enclosure, when air moves through those, so air from from outside the house comes in, some of it may be coming from a uh, dirty attic. It may be sucked through that dead squirrel lying over the hole. And some of it may be coming up through the uh, moldy crawl space where the dead possum is lying down there. Mm-hmm. Some of it, uh, even worse, is going to be coming from the garage. If you've got an attached garage, that's where the worst air in the house is. And if you bring that indoors, then you're really doing a disservice to indoor air quality and the people who live in the house. So a house does not need to breathe in the sense that you leave random leaks in for air exchange. You want to make the house as airtight as possible and then bring outdoor air in through a mechanical ventilation system. and and one that will let you know where the air is coming from.
0: So it sounds like you're trying to supplement traditional knowledge, which, you know, there was some integrated understanding there. Traditional knowledge says that energy efficiency and indoor air quality are related. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It just didn't define that relationship uh, in a a fact-based way or a predictable outcome-based way. So... Is it a, it sounds like that's a bit of a kind of a building industry myth, you know, a house needs to breathe. So the book, though, it's not really like a Mythbusters episode in book form. It's it's really a description of what do people want out of their houses and how to get it. Right, right. Although,
1: um... One of the purposes of the book is to um, debunk a lot of the myths that are out there, like that one, and um, can you save money by closing vents in unused rooms, and should you keep the air conditioner thermostat on, on run for better IAQ instead of putting it in on the auto mode? The
0: whole house as a system thing. is yep. It's not a simple thing. There's a resistance to wanting to th- think of it that way.
1: Right. Yeah, and yeah, and that's what it all comes down to. The house is a system. So first of all, start off with with what you want to achieve with the house. What is it that the homeowners need? What the occupants need from that house to to be happy and healthy, and um, and then quickly you're talking about the house as a system because everything's connected. And you've got to make sure that when you do one thing, like move the building enclosure from the the flat ceiling to the roof line, if you do that, that changes the dynamics of what's going on in the house. And if you do that with spray foam in the attic, but you don't condition the air in the attic, then you can end up with moisture problems in the attic because you didn't account for that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, You just touched on something that's actually – kind of a Gordian knot in our industry, which is, you know, we've just said what do owners want from their house. What we also mean, but you also were very quick, quick to add occupants, because there are times where there's a bit of a split incentive, right? Because there's a lot of homes that are built by, or the decisions that define the home that was built happened independent before the occupant showed up. And in that case, the quote owner while the house was being designed was the builder. And what they want was this house needs to look fantastic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It doesn't need to necessarily also be fantastic as long as it is um, in the ways it's not fantastic. They're not obvious or visible or certainly not going to come back and you know, bite me and my insurance policy. So yeah, you're 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 actually saying you want to put it into the perspective of the occupants. What do what do anybody that lives indoors likely want from that experience? Okay, so yeah, it's not really a Mythbusters situation, but maybe we could talk a little bit about myths generally, uh, or maybe not generally, but um, stories and inaccurate facts. Um, Do you have any insight why they managed to stick around for so long in the industry, the building industry?
1: Well, uh, I am not a psychologist or anything like that, but I've I've read some stuff about this. and, And one thing that I've read that and I, I think there's a lot of corroboration of this. Is that when a statement gets thrown out there, whether it's true or not, uh, people will latch onto it, and even if it's proven to be false later on, they still believe it. Hmm. Uh, and this is every once in a while you'll see this come up somewhere where you know somebody's trying to debunk something that's gotten into the popular culture. Some. Something that's going around, and I can't think of any good examples at the moment. Uh, well, okay, here's one. And I think Ira Glass on This American Life did a show about it. Um, the The issue of calamari. When you go to a restaurant and order fried calamari, uh, there's somebody 10 years ago or so said, you know, that stuff that you're getting at a restaurant that they tell you is fried cal- calamari that's really cow bung. That's not calamari at all. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, somebody put that out there, and they showed a picture of a box from a, uh, you know, a stockyard or something with um, Mark's calamari. I, I don't know. And hmm. so that got out there, and it turned out that that was not true. There was There was no truth to that, but... But people will still tell you that you know they don't eat calamari because it's cow bung.
0: <laughs> wow. Like <laughs> we like shorthands or something, and a convenient shorthand that makes sense um, is ho- it's durable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like generation to generation. Yep. Yeah. I mean, one of them we touched on the beginning of the episode that just the attic ventilation thing, right? It's you. Mm-hmm have a perforated soffit and you have a ridge vent and we can all just kind of close our eyes and imagine the air whisking in and pulling the heat out with it. But if you start to think about like, well, how much air would I need to have moving through those holes to actually substantially move the heat out? Um, It's a lot. Those would be big holes. Okay. So the, one of the main points of us on this podcast was really to help People understand how awesome you are and that you are writing a book. Could you tell us more about the book? Yeah, so the book is called A House Needs to Breathe, or Does It?
1: And the subtitle is The Myths That Lead to Uncomfortable, Unhealthy, Inefficient Homes and How to Overcome Them. Awesome. I'll be de- debunking myths, but the, the bigger picture is that I'm going to be laying out you know, what people want out of a house, what people need out of a house, and how to get there based on building science. This is a book that's not written yet. I've got some of it written, but it's uh, in progress. I am currently doing a campaign to get pre-orders on a website called Publishizer.com. That's Publish I-Z-E-R, Publishizer.com. And if you go there, click on proposals and then um, live campaigns, and you'll see mine in there. A house needs to breathe, or does it? And the campaign runs till the 16th of April, uh, so about two and a half weeks from right now when we're recording this, but 16th of April, 2020. And the more pre-orders I get, the better. Um, because higher numbers of pre-orders means better publishers will be interested. And I want a really good publisher to get this out far and wide. Uh, the the other thing you might want to know is my my goal for getting this done is uh, by the end of this year. So by the end of 2020, I hope to have this out. Uh, and that will depend somewhat on the publisher. I don't know what their schedule is going to be, but I'm hoping to have it out by the end of this year.
0: You're going to be busy. Yep. Good thing we're social distancing. Um. <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes to the Publishizer page. And those of you that are in education organizations, I would encourage you to consider um, buying large copies of the book because Allison also has uh, special um, offers for you. Could you talk about those, Allison? Yeah. So
1: I've got – there's seven different bonus levels. You can buy one copy or three copies or six copies or ten or – 50 or 100 or 250. And as you go up with the... No matter how many copies you get, the, the price is $25 per book. So if you buy one copy, you pay $25. You buy the the, the, the six-pack, which is six copies, you get six times 25 or $150. And if you buy 100 copies, it's $2,500. So it's, it's always the same price per book, but you, you get uh, some bonuses. And the, the highest levels, uh, the bonuses are a half-day workshop for me or a full-day workshop for me, and the one below that I think is um, – a webinar. And then there's one before that is an hour of consulting time. And so there's different bonuses that you get with the different levels. And so I'm
0: really thrilled the Austin passive house group is going to get a half day workshop. Work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You guys uh, went for the second highest level and are getting
0: a um, hundred copies. So that's going to be great. Thank you so much, Allison. And, and just before we wrap up, I'm kind of reflecting on our conversation in my mind and I'm going to make a comment. Feel free to pile on if you you want, but you don't have to. But uh, when we talk about uh, various actors in the industry, installers or manufacturers or builders, I want to be really clear that I have tremendous respect and tremendous appreciation for the discipline and the exertion and the skill in these these people, uh, in this group that serves our society in this critical way. And I certainly don't mean disrespect any comments like where I'm laughing and joking. You know, it's, it's kind of because, uh, or I mean, just maybe disparagingly laughing and joking. It's because I'm frustrated uh, based on the fact that I do care so much. I'm frustrated that these hardworking, intelligent individuals sometimes traffic in actions that aren't, um, in my opinion, skillful. They don't lead to the outcomes people want. So that's kind of a disclaimer there. Yeah, well said. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts and your story with our audience, Allison. And I wish you tremendous luck with your book and all future endeavors. Well, thank you for having me, Christoph. Appreciate it. Our pleasure. And thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.